Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King, and you're listening to the photography podcast dedicated to getting you out there on an adventure of your own. I know that all of you have full-time jobs, full-time families, but you bought that camera for a reason. So pack your gear, grab your camera, get out there, get a flat tire. It's time for a Photog Adventure of your own. It's episode 138, and welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast, everybody. And I'm excited, really excited, tremendously excited. If you guys have already read the podcast list, in fact, I bet some of you right now actually were looking at all the podcasts you missed recently. Like, okay, which one to listen to? Which one to listen to? <gasps> Royce Bear. Yes. I'm going to listen to this podcast, and I'm excited to record it. Royce, we're excited to have you back. Hey, Royce. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) We had the Nightscaper Conference to talk about, but we also have the Master Milky Way guru here who is excited to talk about Milky Photography, and I'm just stoked to have the guy who just so happens that he was at Mirror Lake when I went to Mirror Lake at that one, you know... July in 2016. Man, that was a long time ago that we ran into each other. Yeah. In fact, I posted that image today. No way. You really did? Yeah. On uh, on Instagram. Oh, I've got to follow my Instagram a lot closer. I'm getting help from Mary Beth Kaczynski on her Instagram. And so it's nice to just kind of wash my hands and let her take care of that. Yeah, it it looked beautiful. Uh, gorgeous, super reflection. You had mere, that it was Mirror Lake, but it was actually Pass Lake. Mm-hmm. But we won't tell anybody. No, no, we don't want to tell anyone. It's Mesa Arch, right? Yeah, no right. one should go there. <laughs> so welcome back to the podcast, guys. We're talking Milky Way today, and specifically the Nightscaper Conference. If you guys don't know about it, you're going to get the elevator pitch from the man himself, as well as hearing some successful you know, testimonial stories from the the last one that we just did this year in May. So guys, hang back. Let's talk Milky Way. And to begin that, Royce, you've been really busy with the Nightscaper Conference. You probably haven't had much time for yourself, but what was the last Milky Way you got out for? Well, I went out on three different Milky Way shoots just in the past week and a half. Are you kidding? Yeah. Awesome. So it's been a fun ride, but the the very latest was at Fantasy Canyon. Oh. It's eastern Utah. It's over by Vernal. It's about 40 miles south of Vernal, Utah. Uh, really freaking weird little canyon <laughs> it is unfortunately you know i looked up on google earth and i looked up on dark sky finder maps and it looked like it was about a Bortle three looking into Bortle two class mm-hmm. and i thought oh there's not that much light pollution because this is a uh, this is the old overthrust belt uh, area that has a a lot of oil exploration. It's got a lot of donkey pumps out there pumping oil. <laughs> donkey pumps. Yeah, never heard them called that before. I don't know much about oil dealing, drilling yeah, anyway. They're the Derrick things that go up and down pumping oil. <laughs> but uh, there were about I think four really high powered mercury vapor lights. Those are the blue green lights. Yep. And they were about a half mile away, and they were they were giving. Low-level lighting already, uh-huh. an ucky, yucky, greenish-blue <laughs> color. Uh, I could have overpowered them by doubling or quadrupling up the intensity, hmm. but I decided to work with them, and um, it actually came out pretty good. If I ever go out there again, I'm going to try you know, quadrupling the power of my lights, 
But that makes it so that you have to sh shoot two exposures, one for the uh, the lighting and then one for the Milky Way. Mm, right. And then um, strip out the background. So do you overpower the lighting and then expose much less so that it still looks like it's a subtle light on your landscape? Or does it end up coming off like a crazy bright light? Yeah, well, you, you, uh, you increase the lighting, quadruple it, and then expose it less. So it's back to looking low-level lighting. Mm, good. But it's overpowering the existent ambient light, which looked pretty yucky, which you can't control. It's coming from one direction. So you've got to move around until it looks right uh -huh. and then try to compose with the milk, align with the Milky Way. I was able to do that and, um, and keep it the same exposure as the Milky Way. It looked good. And then I brought in some some of my own low-level accent lighting to, in the shadow portions. Oh. And it it really came out looking good. But if you don't want to have to deal with that ambient lighting that's coming from the light pollution, mainly those mercury vapor lights from, uh, these are pumping stations that are quarter, half mile away, then you're going to have to use four to six times, even eight times uh, more intense low-level lighting. So you overpower the existing ambient lighting, but then you cut back on the exposure. Then you take a second exposure uh, just for the Milky Way and then blend those together in Photoshop. The way I did it, uh, it's my standard single exposure deal where all the lights are balanced to the same exposure as the Milky Way sky. Nice. So you get it all in one shot. Mm -hmm. But then I shoot about 12 images so that I can stack it so that it looks great, you know, reduces the the noise. So I was there are two ask, ways in which you can do that. When you brought up Fantasy Canyon, I thought right back to last June when I was out there with Brandon and how much we were so annoyed by that light. Our, our solution to the light was when we go back, we were going to shoot it so that it was broken. But your solution's far more, you know, kind and patient. So you overpower it. with light. I didn't even consider that because it has such an, an ugly green cast That's on right. the terrain. I ended up just completely cloning out that hill that over, there's this one part of the hill in one composition that I only saw at the distant tip of that hill where the light was hitting it, but not hitting any of my Fantasy Canyon subjects. So then I just kind of cut it out and cloned in some stars. That's what I did to deal with it. For anybody, uh, for, for those out there who have never heard of Fantasy Canyon, this these are sandstone formations that were covered with uh, sedimentary mud, and then that is eroded away, leaving these weird sandstone features that look like aliens. Oh, very I mean, they do. are so weird. And they, <laughs> they look like modern art sculptures. They're just crazy cool. <laughs> uh, they're not very big. Uh, most of them are only about 10, 15, 20 feet high. That was surprising to me. I thought yeah. they'd be a little bit bigger. I thought the area was small, but I didn't realize when they said it was small, they meant everything you're looking at is just another person standing next to you with a weird shape. It's yeah. not huge. So in order to really uh, do some impact, you've got to get fairly close to them, which means you're going to have to do some focus stacking. Too. Gotcha. I was going to ask you that. So how did you approach it? Because you could, like you say, get really close and bring them high in your frame. Do you think you framed them uh, three 
two thirds of the way up in your frame or were they low in your frame doing a panorama? How did you compose around them? Uh, I, I made them about two thirds high in the frame, but then on the left or right side had the Milky Way coming down into the picture, oh, down cool. to the bottom third. So uh, one third of the land, foreground landscape was uh, only occupied one third of, of the bottom frame. The right side or the other side occupied two thirds. And then you just inverse that on the sky composition. Nice. So it, um, I think it looked really nice. Uh, but you do have to do some focus stacking. The whole thing, the whole thing was shot in one exposure, and several twelve did twelve one expo, single exposure, so I could stack them. But then afterwards, I refo I stopped down. Instead of focusing stacking, I stopped down three stops to f eight. Oh, and, really? And did a very long exposure about six minutes you keep so your lights it, on at that point uh-huh okay yeah and the reason why that i did that is so i wouldn't have to change the focus there was enough depth of field at f8 to get that foreground uh, sharp so i didn't really focus stack i just stopped down like but crazy. you took every option just in case you needed it back in post-processing that's right so then i can blend that foreground exposure into the st uh, group of stacks that I did at f2.8. Right on. Okay. With it being just last week, have you had a chance to look at it yet? I have, and they, they look really nice. Oh, good. Yeah. When you're light painting something like that that has a weird shape, I mean, you guys have to picture, uh, I mean, imagine if someone's hand is clenched and you've poured the, you know, baking soda and water the flour and water in your hand and then you let go and that shape you get in that that stiff that's turning i guess that stiff mix that's like a clay mashed in your hand and you let go and you get the gaps between your fingers the gap up out of the hole at the top and then you just see all the wrinkles in your hands that kind of bizarre shape is kind of what a lot of these hoodoos look like they don't look like soft round pillars they look like they have different wacky duck bills going off in different directions oh, and wizards and like you said duck bills and <laughs> uh fingers and arms stretched out yeah they, they really look gark like notre dame gargoyles oh yeah some of them are true. some of the most weird looking gargoyle type features um it, some of them look like the wizards out of Dark Crystal. Do you, do you remember that? I remember uh, that. Jim the David Hansen? Bowie movie, yeah. Dark Crystal. Yeah, <laughs> I guess he was in Labyrinth more. It was a wacky show, but it was like the features in that. Absolutely. How do you light paint something like that? How did you approach it? Well, you know, I looked around in the daytime uh, looking for features, and luckily, the two features that I decided to use, the light was coming. From that uh, pumping station at just about the right angle, and mm. then, uh, like I said, I used l my own low-level lighting coming from uh, the opposite angle so that I could fill in the shadows okay. with that. So you had the blue-green, and I used kind of a, an orangish-brown fill light to oh. fill the shadows, and then on the other one. I, uh, I recently did a uh, uh, a blog uh, 
about some e-crumb lights, these little tiny ball lights e-crumb. that I use as uh, Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs to find my <laughs> way back, and as, but can also be used, the yellow ones, can, goldish color ones, can be used as little accent lights. So I used four of those, hiding them under and behind oh. these gargoyle-type features, and they just put really cool goldish uh, glows behind certain features. Just accented it very, very well. Uh, that is one thing I'm learning in my low-level lighting is that my arsenal is not complete without something like those breadcrumb lights or the small little goal zero lanterns where you can put it underneath a rock or behind a subject without having that really strong, overpowering LED panel blowing out. Because if I use my newer or my FNV Z96, it's too much light, even at the lowest. So I try laying it down flat, and I get some angular light when shadows off of it that look kind of funny. And it's nice having just that little goal zero lantern that kind of puts a 360 degree light out, and it's soft enough to be in frame without blowing it out. Yeah, these these little ball lights are about as big as the tip of your finger. That small. Yeah. So they're <laughs> they're only. Uh, like half an inch in diameter. They wow. cost a whopping 15 cents a piece. Whoa, whoa. And, they, and, they'll, <laughs> and they'll last for like two or three days. And so they're like one-time use items. Yeah, they're one-time use. They have a little oh. tab you can put back in between the two batteries to shut them off, but I'm always losing them, losing the tab. <laughs> that <laughs> but, would be easy to lose. <laughs> you know, I keep them in my pocket, and people walk up to me in the middle of the night, and this is. There's something glowing in your pocket. Uh, oh yeah, those are those are my little e crumbs, my little uh, electronic breadcrumbs to help me find my way back. And and by the way, those were great. In you know, I put a couple of those uh, in the middle of each one of those little gargoyles to find my way to them at night because you know there were hundreds of these little features. Which one? Where was that one that I wanted yeah. to photograph? And so uh, I, that's my main use for them as uh, electronic Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs. Literally, to find my you ba- follow your way with them. Follow my way back to them. But then after I picked them up, I found the location and set up my tripod so I know where I am. So you're doing that in the daylight, and then you come back at night while they're still glowing? And yeah, see? exactly. Because they'll, <laughs> gl- they'll glow for two or three days. Uh, and so this e-crumb is not your funny way of calling it. They're literally called e-crumb? No, they're not. They're oh, cal- okay. They're called uh, ball lights or balloon lights or party party lights. Uh, I've listed them on my blog. That's uh, okay. RoyceBear.com is my blog. And so it's the latest blog right now. If you go to it, you'll see it. Awesome, guys. So on the show notes, if you go to photogadventures.com forward slash EP138, you're going to see in the show notes down below a link to Royce's article where you can see these lights and then go ahead and get them. Have you put an affiliate link on there so people can help you out with an Amazon a dollar or two? Yes. Yeah, a dollar or two. I think it's 58 cents I get. (laughs) Oh, yes. Ooh. Well, I mean, if you can buy 10, 20 of those for real. Just twenty bucks. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, you get a hundred of them for fifteen bucks. A hundred of them. Yeah. Oh wow. And, and, and I think my affiliate uh, commission is fifty-eight cents. Yeah. Two well, percent or whatever it is. <laughs> Soon Royce will be driving that really great dream car. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> but th- those things have so many multiple uses. Uh, in this particular shot. 
Uh, a couple of them were too bright, so uh, I put McDonald's brown amber napkins oh, on wow, top. Oh, really? You know, just tear off one little tissue. Just what you or, had at the time. Yeah, I, I just happened to have some extra McDonald's <laughs> napkins and just tore off some of the tissue. Uh, you know, toilet paper works fine, too. Something to diffuse the light. So sometimes yeah, they can be too bright. They can be too bright. I mean, uh, these things don't put out a lot of light, but... When they're only like two feet from the features, you've got to dim them down a little oh, bit. With the ones you're linking us to, are they white light, bluish, yellowish? All of the above. Oh, you could yeah, choose. Yeah, so you can buy them just white. So I buy, you can get red, green, blue. I buy just two different colors, the white, and that's what I use for the mm-hmm. the e-crumbs to find my way back, and then the yellow, which I use for accent lighting. Because I like kind of a, a warm glow because uh, it's opposite of what I use for the key light <laughs> or the main light. How well do they work when you're using your headlamp to find your way out? Oh, just fine. You can even see them in the daytime if you know where they, they are. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, at night they – and sometimes, uh, you know, I'll put them under a bush or under something so they glow up yeah. in, into the bush – Rather than, uh, if you see the the LED itself, uh, you know that, that that's pretty bright. But if you have them reflecting into something, then it's uh, less obtrusive. That sounds perfect, especially for the place that I was just at last week in Escalante. We're in Devil's Garden. You got a lot of subjects there that if you use your big old LED panel to light up that little arch or that little opening, you're going to end up lighting all the bushes between the light and the opening. But when we put the light underneath the arch and have it reflect off the ground and then light up only that part of the subject, it just burns back all the different distracting elements of those branches and this and that that I don't want in my shot, but I want to pull back for enough to see the Milky Way. So having that low-level lighting that's nice and localized like that is brilliant, and I missed it last week because I didn't have anything low like that accent light. So these e-chrome lights are great. To keep a handful of these things, a dozen in your backpack or in your pocket, they just really come in handy. (laughs) And and you want to keep some toilet paper in one of your other pockets to diffuse them Hmm. if you need it, you know. Debating on a type of gaffer's tape that would work well with that, as I love gaffer's tape, but they'll probably just completely black it out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an awesome tip right there to get started off with. With these e-crumb lights, check out the balloon lights over on Royce Bear's article. If you're following right now, you don't want to go to my link, just go to RoyceBear.com and check out his recent blog post. The reason why they call them balloon lights is that uh, at weddings and stuff, they will Uh put them inside the balloon before they fill them up with helium. Uh And so then they're hanging... There, you got all these balloons with a little tiny light inside it, omnidirectional Man. light. Just looks so cool. LEDs are changing so much. Yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. And fifteen cents a pop. Right. What a deal. Every workshop you come with me, guys, next year, you're gonna have a whole pocket full of these because that's gonna be great. And some people complain, oh well, just another thing to clutter up the parks. <laughs> uh, let me no. tell you, uh, I've been using them for several months now. I do not. I'm positive that I have not lost any of them. I've been able to pick up. Remember, they glow for two or three, four days. They're easy to find. Mm -hmm. I pick them up and put them in my other pocket before I walk out. So... Yeah. Uh, if you a, find any cluttering the park, they're not mine. <laughs> yes. It's someone out there that's listening to this podcast right now who 10 year, months down the road 
bought them and forgot them. So make sure you guys leave with them. Don't forget them out there. But they glow, so it should be very easy to find them. Yeah. And don't bury them so much that you never see them again. So then let's go into the Nightscaper Conference stuff, Royce. Um, just for those who maybe haven't caught on that the Nightscaper Conference happened this year and maybe aren't sure what it's all about, give us the elevator pitch for the Nightscaper Conference and why we should go. Well, the one we just finished, May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, was in Moab, Utah. We had 150, 60 people, like-minded individuals. Just that right there is cool. (laughs) You've got all these wonderful nightscape photographers that are thinking similar to the way you do. It's just fun to rub shoulders with Mm -hmm. them. Then we had uh, 16, 17 speakers uh, speaking on all different subjects of uh, starry night sky photography. It was just a, a lot of fun. So we're doing the same thing again next May, only this is going to be May 20th, 21st, and 22nd. We're not going to Moab, Utah this year. We're going to Kanab, Utah, yeah. another small southern Utah town right down by the Very Arizona-Utah small. border. You know, this this town only has uh, 4,400 population, but it's got about uh, 2025 hotels in it. <laughs> that small of a town. That says something about what people are going there for. Yeah, Mostly I mean, this place town. is close to the Wave. It's close to White Pocket. It's close to Grand Canyon. It's only 30 miles from Zion, from oh, the geez, entrance of Zion National Zion? Park. <laughs> uh, it's about 70 miles from Bryce. You know, it's close to Page, Arizona, where you got Horseshoe Bend and Lake Powell. I mean, it's just a you've got the uh, Escalante and the Toastil yes, Hoodoo's only 45 minutes away. Uh, like I said, the Grand Canyon, two different parts of the Grand Canyon, the north rim of the Grand Canyon, which is the only part of the Grand Canyon that you can see the Milky Way. The, in the south, yeah. in the southern hemisphere, you can't see the Milky Way over the Grand Canyon on the south rim because you're already there. Right, you're there. <laughs> you got to look behind you to yeah. see the Milky Way. That was our dis- disappointment. We went out there three years ago, so you had to look all the way to the behind you. So you'd capture a pano of the Grand Canyon, then you'd continue on showing the Milky Way over the parking lot. And you know we're only 75 miles from Toro Weep. Uh, looking over it's a grand canyon overlook it's Mm. the only place where a road goes out to the grand canyon and you can look over the grand canyon three thousand foot drop oh it drives right up to the three thousand foot drop yeah it's just incredible (laughs) uh mind you it's a rough road but uh, it's still a road the toro weep road is pretty rough (laughs) yeah it's a pretty rough road the last two and a half miles but Mm. before that's a good good gravel road before that but the last two and a half miles uh is high clearance oh man well i know that an hour and 40 minutes isn't going to keep us away from the north rim for one of our one night workshops next year because i really am excited to get that bucket list item checked off milky way over the grand canyon (laughs) and we've chosen uh this part of may because it's a beautiful time of year may is the second lowest rainfall Good, comfortable temperatures, warm but not too hot. Mm-hmm. And May 5th, the uh, North Room of the Grand Canyon does not open until the May 15th each oh, year just because barely. of snow. Uh, <laughs> it's higher elevation, right? So yeah, it has lots elevation. of snow on that path. 
Yikes. And if you're going down to the North Rim, can you stay for a few days? There's no facilities. There's nothing out there but camping, right? Oh, on the North Rim of the Grand Canyon is the beautiful Grand Canyon Lodge North Rim. Oh, it's gorgeous. But you've got to book uh, quite a ways in advance on that. That baby fills up. And the restaurant there is just to die for. The really? food is, is great because the the overlook is good. And that's uh, 79 miles away from Kanab. So just some fun things to do before or after the conference. Some of those things you won't want to do during the conference or you'll be too sleep deprived to be able to listen to the speakers <laughs> Ain't that the, the next truth. day. <laughs> that was a reality, guys, of the Nightscaper conference. Just because everyone usually went there busy capturing Milky Way on the way, then during each night they captured the Milky Way, and we just continued on. The term rally started because of that, because we were just constantly going. It's so exhausting, but worth it. Yeah, very much worth it. Remember, you can sleep after the conference. Yeah. (laughs) And you guys, you don't have to take our word for it because we have some unsolicited testimonials right here that Royce received from people who attended this May. So this is from J.K. Schau. Schau Show, do you think? Uh, Schau. Schau. The conference was a home run. Well done, sir. From Matt, he says, it was well planned, coordinated, and executed. I have been involved in quite a few conference events in my career, and this was well done. And then... from Hal Mitzenmacher, I enjoyed the conference very much and look forward to the next one in 2020. I was able to reconnect with old friends and make some new ones while out shooting and at the conference presentations. And then Mary Beth Kaczynski already mentioned her. She has said that I had a fantastic time. I learned so much at this conference and the workshops. It was absolutely amazing to meet the people I've admired and you are inspired by in person. So she's saying that I've admired them and inspired by them and meet them in person was an awesome opportunity. And then she met a bunch of new, bunch of newfound friends and I want to mention from Terry. Terry joined us out there at one of our workshops, and he says the presenters were knowledgeable and delivered sold, uh, solid and delivered solid presentations with info someone could go out and use that night. And for me, that was worth the entire conference. The cost of the conference is minimal in comparison to the knowledge gained and the friendships created. So a lot of great comments here from everybody. Simple things like lots of great information from top speakers from David Soldano. And then Sean Camp said, I was not in attendance, but I hosted a group from Atlanta who said they really loved the conference. So this guy wasn't even there and he's giving you a testimonial about the conference. That's great. <laughs> we appreciate that, Sean. <laughs> and Bob, I can't go without saying yours. One of the best events I have ever attended. And Bob was actually with us, too, on one of our workshop oh, no nights. Kidding. Yeah. I think he said that mostly because of our workshop night. It was, oh, I'm sure that's it. <laughs> it was probably all that he was talking about. <laughs> but that's awesome to see that some of the people on here that you have printed off their testimonials, that they were with us out there at, oh, oh, Dave King says, the past conference was close to perfect. And that's a good transition into close to perfect. Well, how do you build off a of perfection for 2020? What do you think could have gone better in 2019 that's going to be better in 2020? For one thing, we're going to have more conference room space, mm. four or five times as much conference room space so that we can have a whole bunch of breakout rooms Ooh, nice. and panel discussions, all kinds of things so that after you've uh, Listen to a speaker, and the next speaker's coming on. You can go into a breakout room and talk with them in a smaller room, those who want to stay around, and just really get some close personal attention. Oh, cool. And uh, and then the fact that we'll have other tracks going on. We'll also have 
five times more room for our vendors. Oh, so we'll cool. have more vendors there. Not that crowded hallway that we exactly. had to work through last time. Oh, man. You've got to realize that Moab is not a convention town. So we got the biggest conference space that we could find That's in crazy Moab, to see. which was at the Marriott. That was the biggest. But, uh, they're building a conference center in Kanab right now as we speak. It's about halfway finished. I Ooh. went there last week. It's gorgeous. It's knocked down gorgeous. Wow. Uh, so much uh, extra space, and there's some outside areas that are covered pavilions that we'll be able to dine in. By the way, that's another thing. We had one meal that was catered last year. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a, me- a luncheon every day this really? year. Really? Free luncheon every day. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Plus a get-to-know-you dinner the first night. Oh, nice. So just a lot of extra things. And we're also adding 40% more speakers. We're having some of our top... Uh, speakers return and discuss new subject. You're one of those. I'm really honored to be one of them. I'm really honored. So those are just some of the things that we hope will improve what we did last year. Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to definitely be a win. When you talked about the breakout sessions, I don't think I understand it fully. You're saying that a speaker gives their presentation and then after the presentation, they go to a separate room and they can basically have a free form Q&A with people? Exactly. Wow. And a sit down or just all standing around? No, sit down. Yeah, it'll be totally sit down. Uh, We'll also have those other tracks going on for panel discussions. You know, you really be able to share opinions with people and hear other sides of the story. Uh, We're going to have a panel discussion on ethics. Uh, Is it okay to do composite images for, you know, <laughs> and what what are your feelings on that? And you're going to get a whole bunch of different sides to the story and, and without yelling and shouting. Oh, I hope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you think about uh, the timings that we had this year and possibly maybe in the back of your mind you have a plan for next year or maybe that schedule still coming, but what are we looking at for time in between presentations and how hard will it be to make it to all the presentations you want? Will there be multiples of the same talk given? Yeah, or we're going to send out chance? a survey uh, this fall showing all our speakers and their lineup, their subjects, and so on. And we're going to ask all our, the conference people that are registered by the end of this fall, hmm. which of these speakers do you plan on attending the most? Do you want to hear from the most? And from that, we will give those main people uh, the main rooms uh, for, you know, 70 to 80-minute presentations, whereas uh, the speakers that... Uh, that are not as attractive to the others will get some of the smaller rooms that only hold 150 people. Only the bigger, 150. Yeah, <laughs> the big rooms, the big rooms hold four or five hundred. So. Wow, how many people are going to be allowed to come to this conference? Well, we're shooting for 300, but we may get as many as 400. Whoa, so no yeah. wait list this year, just yeah. I don't think we'll have list. a wait list this year because I think we can accommodate everybody that wants to come. The biggest problem will be. Uh, making sure you get a room to Mm, sleep in. Yeah, that was my question. (laughs) This conference center is just 
a conference center, right? Yeah. No attached rooms. Right. Now, there are three, two hotels that are only half a block from the conference center. Okay. And then there are four other hotels that are less than three blocks from the hotel. Oh. So we think with the top six hotels that are within three blocks, we're going to be able to accommodate everybody, uh, we think. As long as they start booking their rooms early, because as they get closer to the conference, there are other people coming to Canab for other purposes, <laughs> yeah. and they will they will start booking up, and you'll get pushed out. You'll you'll have to go to Outer Mongolia <laughs> yeah. in order to attend the conference. Quick drive to Ulaanbaatar, and you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> So th- that's that's what's important. Uh, we'll have plenty of room for for the conference for people to attend, but uh, even with the twenty different hotels in that town of only forty four hundred, uh, as it gets May is a very popular month. So as you get closer to May of next year, you're going to get pushed out if you don't book a room. Mm. Well, that's going to be the key thing. And if you guys are listening to this podcast right now thinking, okay, I definitely want to go and I'm excited to go register, get yourself $100 off by using my code ADVENTURE100. That code's only going to be active through the end of June before that is going to be off. Actually, right? we're going to extend <gasps> that to July. Ooh, for you. okay, great. Yeah, for you because oh. you're so cool. <laughs> well, thank you. Special treatment, guys. Everyone on the podcast, you have until the end of July, but don't wait until July because you can't get your hotel in time. So make sure you guys get that out right now and register for the Nightscaper Conference. Where can they go? What's the website? The website is nightscaper.com. So nightscape with an R at the end, nightscaper.com. All right, nightscaper.com, get registered. Use the use the discount coupon code ADVENTURE100, all one word. Awesome. And they get $100 off. That's going to be sweet. And you get to see even more people coming than last year, paying nearly the same price for double the activities, double the fun, and just uh, if you're going to be there, like Royce was pointing out, it's close to so many different places you probably have on your bucket list that you've been wanting to see before the conference, after the conference, you can get out. In fact, you can join me in Escalante. I have four slots available still for the Escalante workshop. That's happening right after the conference if you wanted to take any photography out there. So, Royce, before we go into our first break of the podcast, let me ask you this question. When it comes to the Nightscaper Conference in 2019, was there anything that surprised you about it or anything that just went really, really well that you want to talk about? I was so surprised as how well people got along. Hmm. Um, they People were just very cordial to everyone and really tried to help out and share information. I I hope that same thing carries on to, to next year. And since we'll be in less crowded situations <laughs> and not on top of each right. other, hopefully that will happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will. As I have found, all of you Milky Way photographers out there are some of the best people out that I've met. Really classy, really intelligent, and just you understand how to be polite and courteous of other people around Very you. true. All right, let's go ahead and take our first break of the podcast, and we're going to come back with Royce Bear and talk about his Milky Way photography, ask him some questions about post-processing, and hear some stories about him getting out there and having adventure. Great. 
Hey, uh, we hope you go to the Nightscaper Conference 2020. That's at nightscaper.com. And if you use Adventure 100 at checkout, you're going to get $100 off on the conference registration. Yes. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up for Photog Adventures. If you guys want to come through with Photog Adventures, get that $100 discount as well. Come join us. Go to nightscaper.com and sign up today. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast, everybody. I'm hanging out with Royce Bear, a hero of mine. Hey, guys, just so you just so you paint the picture correctly in your brain about what kind of hero I mean. I found his work, I found his site, and I found his ebook. And I decided to purchase his ebook so I can learn from it. And I was reading through it, and not related to his ebook, I was already going out to Mirror Lake. And so I had just barely purchased it that night or the night before, and was going through it when. Out in the parking lot in Mirror Lake, who else would show up but none other than Royce Bear, the man whose book I had just bought and work I had admired had showed up on location and asked me if I wanted to join him while we're out there at Mirror Lake. And oh, what an awesome experience. I'm so glad we went out that night. I remember you saying, how do you find still quiet water? Here on Mirror Lake. I says, all I'm getting is ripples. I, I'm not getting a good reflection. Come with me. Come with and, me, young Padawan. Yeah, and I will show you a little cove. Oh, man. And, and it was so quiet there, remember? Yes, it was perfect. And then the low-level lighting experience, that was my first time with it. The constant low-level light being on, I had never done it before that day. Yeah, what's so cool about constant low-level lighting is that a dozen people can go their way and shoot to their heart's content. The light stays the same all the time. It's also great for people who do time lapses because you can shoot 100, 200, 300 right? exposures, every one of them. The lighting is the same. <laughs> and it looks brilliant. And just the time, ah, it's been the best. I have not changed from that ever since. Do you want to hear about a, a low-level lighting experience that I had about a week and a half ago? Yes, of course I do. It, it, uh, I went out to Bluff, Utah, which is clear down at the bottom of southern Utah. And just south of Moab. Yep. So it's south of Moab, about two hours. This is kind of the gateway to Bears Ears. Yeah, close and to Blanding. also Valley, Valley of the Gods. So you can get to Bears Ears from Blanding, go west from Blanding, or you go up um, north northwest from Bluff. I like Bluff. Uh, it's, the, the, the hotel prices are a little higher, though. Oh, are they? Yeah. I haven't tried to stay there. I stay in Blanding, but I go through Bluff all the time, and I love it, but I've never stopped for anything for photography yet, even though I love what I'm seeing. I'm always on my way to something. So did you shoot a Milky Way out in Bluff or just nearby in Valley of the oh, Gods? Oh, no, I, I go to uh, Valley of the Gods. Ah. Now, Valley of the Gods is technically not part of Beer, Bears Ears National Monument anymore. It was, oh, it was but originally. that was one of the things they took out. And, and that's okay because it, it's, it was more of a roaded area with uh, more camping and RV people. Mm. So... Uh, it it's, remains open for that now yeah, because still it's no longer open part of the monument. That, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so I went to Valley of the Gods, and I went there mainly to shoot Castle Butte, which is at the top part of Valley of the Gods, uh, the road snakes around that butte. And 
a beautiful butte. The cool thing about Valley of the Gods is it looks very much like the landscape of Monument Valley. Right. But you don't have some of the Indian nation problems. Now, I have nothing against the Navajo Indian nation. Of course nation. not. Not at all. Uh, they have a beautiful area, but in order to shoot at night there, right. you have to have a paid guide with you. Uh, you cannot go shoot in Navajo, in Monument Valley, in the Navajo Nation without a guide. And I think that's a good thing. So I have mm-hmm. no problem there. I'm just telling you that... It's less complicated if you go to Valley of the Gods. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I pick out a spot in the daytime to go shoot a panorama Milky Way. Oh, and I am going to light this very subtly with low-level lighting from a half a mile away. I was going to ask you, okay, this butte is pretty tall? Yeah, it's pretty tall butte, but I'm going to go in a canyon to um, to the southwest of this butte and light it at about a 60 to 90 degree angle perpendicular to the to the butte itself. Now, when I say below low-level lighting, I like my low-level lighting to be at approximately 0.02 lux at the, at the landscape. That gives me a light that's equal to quarter moonlight. How do you make sure you have 0.02 lux? Uh, I'm going to be putting out uh, a little book uh, later the end of this year that'll tell you all about how to do that. Oh, I can't and, wait. And a supplement to those people who take, uh, who've already bought my ebook, they get this for free. Ooh. Yeah. So then you guys can go out right now and go to intothenight.blogspot.com or uh, roycebear.com, have it easily to purchase your ebook right now. That's correct. Okay, go to roycebear.com, guys, and get his ebook if you don't have it already. I have a signed copy of it thanks to my ebook taking a picture of the screenshot of the front page and getting Royce Bear to sign it. So I have Royce Bear's signature on my ebook, and it's awesome. Yeah, anybody who registers their purpose, uh, when I go to update the ebook, especially about how to do the nitty-gritties of low-level lighting, I'll teach you how to get that .02 lux. Um, it's quite easy. Now I don't even use the calculator to do it. I can see it. Oh, wow. I can see it with my eyes. You get experience enough that you can just see it. Okay, but <laughs> okay, if you take low, the light sources that I use, which, you know, like a Z90, F and yeah. Z96 uh, panel light, and you put it more than 900 feet away, that's the maximum that you can go with one of those lights. I was curious. At full power and get the low-level lighting effect at the object that you're trying to photograph. That's brilliant that you figured If you want to get further away, you're going to have to use two panel lights, three panel lights, four panel lights, so on, so forth. How do you use two and three? Are you saying that I, they I are combined right together? Each other. So just having two next to each other at full blast, you can go more than 900 feet away. Exactly. Ah, okay. So I'm using, I'm using four of these at a half mile away. <laughs> okay, as you know that life 
light falls off inverse proportionally so that at a half a mile, I'm still uh, like three stops underexposed at the exposure that at, in low level lighting, you want the lighting on the lamp, foreground landscape to equal your exposure for mm. the Milky Way so that you get it in one shot. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, what happens if you're t like three stops underexposed on the foreground? Well, then you have to bring it up and post a lot or stack. I mean, it just means you're going to have to do a longer exposure. Oh, I see it. Yeah, right so there you, at the camera, longer exposure. Yeah, so if, you, uh, if you're not getting enough light on the foreground, you're just going to have to give uh, open up to three stops in this case. And I'm already wide open, so I can't do that. Right. <laughs> so instead of going my normal 15, 20-second exposure, I'm now going to have to go a minute. Or in this case, I was more than that underexposed, so I had to actually go two-minute exposure Okay. <sighs> for the foreground. And then you want to do several of those so you can stack those together to reduce noise. And on at least one of those, use the long exposure noise reduction to get rid of the hot pixels, noisy pixels. And then instead of getting it all in one shot, you use that foreground exposure and blend it with the sky exposure, which is your normal. So I usually do, I'll do a stack of, you know, stacking exposure. So my foreground is underexposed, almost silhouette. Uh, you know, do about 12 exposures so that I can stack that sky and get a smooth uh, Milky Way sky with low noise. And then I'll shoot at least four of those two-minute exposures with ah. the low-level lighting on the foreground, stack those together, and then blend the two results together. Man, you know, it's very rare that I will actually do a two-minute exposure ever. And in our desert sky, you know, our desert temperatures, it gets dark, it gets cold at night. So we don't usually have the thermal noise as often. But two minutes in, you're definitely going to have hot pixels. And so going back to the noise reduction, you turn it back on for that picture and you let the camera do in in the camera processing of it. Yeah, you can do a dark exposure and then do that later or... Usually on my last exposure, the foreground, I'll do mm -hmm. that, uh, that long exposure noise reduction. So I have at least one good shot that doesn't have any hot pixels or noisy nice. pixels. Nice. And from your, book, pixels. from your book, I've learned the easy way of just having that last picture you take. It goes for two minutes. And then when it's complete and it starts doing that dark. You pack it up. You just pack up the camera, put the lens cap on, and you can walk out of there. Cause yeah, just make sure you don't shut off the power. <laughs> just don't camera. turn off the camera. <laughs> as long as you the camera running, you can let that long exposure of black just happen for, you know, no worries about it. So here's, here's my little story. Um, the Milky Way is arching over it, and I have the core of the Milky Way to the right okay. of the... Um, of Castle Butte. Uh, uh, Castle Butte. So obviously you would want to have the light source, the artificial light source, coming from the right side, the canyon to the right, mm -hmm. so that it's on the same side as the core of the Milky Way. So it looks natural. Yeah, I love okay. it for that way. Yeah. So I go, so just at twilight, just after sun, sunset, I go to walk up that canyon, and I walk by a, a couple that are camping. Okay. 
And I said, uh, excuse me, I'm going to walk up this canyon about a half a mile and put this light source that's going to light up this butte. You're what? <laughs> oh. And I said, he says, we don't want any lights here. Well, you probably, you don't realize this. This is low level lighting. Uh, you're not going to see it. <laughs> It'll probably take you 15 minutes before you can see it because it's it's less than quarter moonlight. In fact, in this case, it's going to be about four times less than quarter <laughs> moonlight. I don't want it. Oh, just instant yeah, no, answer, no. I've come all the way from Wisconsin. I've driven, driven 3,000 miles. This is the one night I'm going to be here, and you're going to ruin my experience. I says, relax. I'm not going to do anything you don't want to. So I went to the opposite canyon and lit it. <laughs> so the light is not coming from my preferred source. Uh, but I am not going to ruffle anybody's no, feathers no just to get my shot. So it's coming from the opposite direction. So I moved around so the core wasn't as far. So the core was right behind the butte now mm. instead of to the right of it. So I made some adjustments. It's not my preferred uh, composition and lighting. But I think it's important that we try to mix mix in right. and play well with others. You know, back to kindergarten. Okay? Especially when he's that frustrated instantly and that worried. You yeah. don't want to make him that depressed. About you know, it. I probably shouldn't even have asked him. I should have just went up the canyon. He would have never have noticed. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Yeah. But since I let the cat out of the bag, uh, the guy was adamantly against it. And I am not going to fight City Hall. I'm not going to <laughs> hurt people's feelings just to get my shot. Right. Good for you. So uh, if we want to keep this uh, free country for all, <laughs> we're going to have to mix well and play with others. <laughs> <laughs> I would have done the same thing as you. I would have approached him about it and told him about it. But then, of course, that brought the concern. Yeah. And they, he probably never would have seen any of it. Ah, uh, it's too bad you couldn't, it was such a far off distance, you couldn't just try both, right? Yeah. You couldn't say, well, let me just try it, and then you'll see that it's not that bad. I actually told that approach, and oh. I said, hey, uh, let me just sh show you what it looks like, and if you don't like it, w we'll take it down. No, I don't want you to do that. And I thought, that's okay, reasonable. fine. Uh, I think I know where you're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. For our Southern Utah workshop, I came across a similar character who ended up moving his camp because he didn't want us to be next to him. Yeah. Uh, I tried my best. He came over and said, um, one of our guys asked if he could put his tripod up on the edge of Gooseneck right there. Here's his trailer, and off to the right of his trailer is this little out part. He was going to set his tripod up, but he asked his permission. The guy said yes. Then the guy came and talked to me about it, and I said, oh, you know, I don't want them to be on your side either. He said that he approached you. Do you want us to not park over there? He's like, yeah, I don't want anyone over there, but I don't want you guys taking any images right by your spot. I'm like, well, no, we're going to take pictures from right here. I, I'm okay with taking pictures, but you have to be done by midnight. Like the Milky Way doesn't come up until 1220, and then we're really going to be out to about 1, 130. Then we'll be done. That's going to be way too loud. I'm like, we're just taking pictures. We're not going to be loud. I'm, I'm going to talk with this voice. He's like, can you go one-third of that volume? I'm like, I'm not going to talk like this to everybody, but I will be pretty quiet. He's like, I don't want you there. I don't want you guys there. I'm just going to leave. I'm like, no, no, you don't have to leave. We can really work out a compromise here. I promise you, we're not going to party. We're just going to take pictures at our cameras, and we're going to go to bed. It's going to be nothing big. 
And he's like, well, just take your tripods down until you go. I'm like, no, no, no. You see, we had to take a daytime shot and blend it with our night. Oh, he was done. He was done at that point. And no matter all the efforts I tried, he went away angry and he moved all the way to the other side of the canyon. And I felt terrible about it. Yeah, you really do feel terrible because, uh, you know, we want to work with people. We don't want to alienate people because of our photography. And I've seen people that are alienated by uh, any form of light painting. And I can understand why the old forms of light painting uh, are so obtrusive. You know, they just blind you. (laughs) These you can't. Low-level lighting, if it's done right, you cannot see it with your naked eye for 15, 20 minutes into it. We had one situation where we, uh, one guy says, well, I don't want to, I don't want any light painting. And uh, uh, Wayne Pinkston said, "Uh, actually, I've already got the lights set up. And can you see it? No. (laughs) And then all of a sudden we heard one person, a photographer uh, that wasn't even our group, scream to the light. He says, I just took a picture. This is amazing. (laughs) This looks awesome. (laughs) You still want us to not set up? Don't cut it down. Leave it there. Was that at the Palouse? Uh, no, falls? this was at a different area. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I know you had quite the experience at Palouse Falls with lights, too. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody even but, kicking one of your lights down. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's done right, it is so subtle. Um, and then I, I, we went, once came aco- across a group, uh, a husband and wife that had set up a time lapse at Broken Arch in Arches National Park. And I came over the hill and saw that there was somebody there because I could see their red headlamps. And so I stopped my my workshop group and walked there another 1,000 feet without a headlamp mm-hmm. and walked in, talked to the person and said, hey, I've got a workshop group. We want to set up some low-level lighting here. and But I can see that you're already set up for a time lapse. So if you don't want us here, we won't come. And he says, that sounds intriguing. No. Why don't you... Why don't you come in and set it up? That's so we came guy. in and set it up, and he published the time lapse, <laughs> and it was so he was so amazed at how well and how subtle the lighting was. <laughs> now back to um, this uh, shot at Castle Butte in Valley of the Gods that I did. I had done this same shot panorama uh, two years prior to that. And I really liked the shot, and I had to do the longer exposure for the foreground to pick up the starlight so you could see detail in the Mm, foreground. But the problem with starlight exposures is that the stars are a canopy uh, that looks like an underexposed overcast day. (laughs) You know, because the light is coming from all directions. So it's really kind of blasé and flat. Right. And although it's natural looking, there's no umph or pizzazz to it. <laughs> By doing this low, 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 low level lighting, where you have just a small accent lighting that you've got to do like four or six or eight times more exposure in order to see that low level lighting, it creates just enough contrast and accent. It's almost like 
the last few rays of the setting sun or the twilight that's hitting the side of that butte. Oh, yeah. And, you know, or the moon has just set and you're just getting that afterglow on one side of the butte. (laughs) That's the effect that you're trying to create. And so low-level lighting can just be so beautiful to add that accent to the image that just enough contrast and interest that makes your picture stand out and so much different than anybody else's without looking artificial. Yeah, and that's the hard balance. I go out with workshops all the time and I let them choose their lighting and it's so hard for people not to be drawn to so much light that they see everything and it looks artificial, but they're happy that they see everything. And it's just, it almost, I mean, can you... Can you safely say that the image without your light and the image with your light should be the only way that you could tell that the light was there almost? Yeah. It's like you could see it when you compare them, but it shouldn't be something that looks like a car just pulled by and flashed its lights on everything. Right. And it's so fun to shoot it with and without and then show in a slide presentation or whatever the difference <laughs> with and without. And people go, Oh, (laughs) that is so subtle, but yet so unique. And it just adds that touch that pops the picture. The thing I'm getting out of this the most is that I need to buy the tall light stands that really are sturdy enough that I can go far enough away. I need to go further from my subjects more often than I'm doing right now. Yeah, you can. And and you don't really need to get a big light. Uh, I've even laid some of my panel lights down on the ground. I've been there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, As long as it's a little null that gets it above the bushes and everything. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. Uh, There is a Polaroid, 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 yeah, Polaroid makes a flat panel light that's only forty. Polaroid still around? Yeah, Polaroid. <laughs> they got their brand name on a big. It's it. It's like twice or three times as wide as it is high. Oh, it's weird. got like two hundred and forty-four LEDs on it. So it gives you twice as much light as a single panel. Oh, and it's wow. only 50 bucks. It's really that cheap? That cheap. Ooh. And here's the real beauty of it. That's 244 LEDs times two because it's got two white, uh, white balance sources. It's got a white daylight and a 3,200-degree 3, Kelvin uh, amber LED set of and LEDs, and you've got a color balance control <laughs> to go all the way from 5,600 degrees Kelvin all the way down to 3,200 degrees Kelvin from the same flat panel light source. So instead of using snap-on filters, it uses electronics. Ah, and so, you can, oh, that's interesting. It's so good. And they make both a um, uh, a smaller unit for about $39 and the bigger unit for $49, $50. You can't go wrong. Now, it uh, doesn't come with batteries. You've got to use those Sony video they batteries. They still fit the same batteries or other ones you use? Yes. Oh, same, great. Same ones. Oh, nice. And it comes with a charger and a battery. Okay. So it even yeah. comes with one. Yeah. That's fantastic. And does it dim enough? Because I find that I love my newer, but they don't dim nearly as much as my FNV light does. They, they don't dim quite as much, but you can... 
take them further back. Yeah. But these are the these are the ones that I use when I have to go a quarter of a mile away, half a mile away. <laughs> I've really enjoyed doing these uh, shots that are further further away. Now, like I say, you can't do everything in one exposure now. Now that you'll have to do some longer exposures for the foreground to blend with the sky exposure, but. You know, you've been doing that anyway with the ambient starlight. Right. But now you'll be able to have some accent that just looks so cool. It's an extra step in post-processing, separating your, your sky from your ground. But would you say that more than 50% of the time these days, you're separating your sky from your ground in your images? I, I would say that, yeah. Mm. And what's cool about it, because you're going a longer exposure for the foreground, you pick up a lot of starlight as well so you get a mixture of starlight <laughs> and the artificial light all in one one shot now mm, keep yeah, in mind yeah. that you're having to do a couple two four three of these shots that you can blend together bring the noise down yeah and it looks so much nicer and you compare like in sequator guys or in starry landscape stacker and you take a foreground and you look and you think okay it's fine it has a grain but i don't mind it and then you do the stacking on it and you see the comparison with the grain and without oh that's milky smooth that's nice it is and you know your foreground shot doesn't have to be run through sequator if you don't want to you can manually stack this in photoshop and a real quick way to do it is, let's say you have uh, five shots that you've done, okay? So you use one as the background base shot. The second one, you you know, you copy and paste. That's layer layer one. So okay. now you've got two layers, the base, the, the base shot or background, and a layer on top of it. So that's basically two. That first layer you want to set the opacity to 50%. Just simply you, change the opacity. Just change the opacity. That'll drop your noise by 25% right there. <laughs> just those two exposures. You don't okay. have to learn sequator, just yeah, learn layers yeah. in Photoshop. Yeah. And then the, the second layer, That's this is now the third image, you drop that on top and lower the opacity to 33%. You get you get the picture here? That yeah. first that first that bottom layer is 100%. The t the I mean, you know, the base image, mm -hmm. the first layer is set at 50%. So you got two images. Second the first layer is half, each half time. and then the third the second layer which is the third image is 33%. Drop in the next one. That's oh. the fourth image, even third layer. One. That's 25% opacity. If you have a fifth image, you drop that drop that one in. That's now 20%. Remember, so you remember one divided by five is now 20. Oh, I see. Yeah, see. I mean, it's 0.2. Gotcha. And, you know, four, four into one is... 25%, three into one is 33%, and one that's into two is 50. That's so that, that's how it's done. And those, if you shot five images and now flatten that, your noise reduction will just be incredible. I've got to see that comparison side by side. Oh, it's I'm just... I'm going to do that. And so that's just a simple way to stack in Photoshop. It's just so easy. You don't have to use Sequator or Starry Landscape. And if stacker. you didn't move your tripod at all, you're just going to quickly 
lay them on each other. You don't have to align them because the foreground's aligned no matter what. Sky yeah. moved, but you're not using the sky in that exactly. shot. Exactly. And then you take that combination, that flattened image, and you blend it with the sky stack that you, you did use sequator or starry landscape stack. Because you will want those features to align everything for yeah. you. Awesome. Well, before we go into our last break of the podcast, I'm going to ask you something that you may or may not be able to do, but I'm hoping this can be something possible to even think in your head and give it to us in under two minutes. So I'm thinking, give us the recipe of how you approach your post-processing. So let me give you an example. Aaron King goes into post-processing his images, and he simply puts them in Lightroom, and he goes and starts off with white balance, and then spends time working on the foreground, the sky, getting the contrast in the sky that he wants on top of lens profile corrections, getting the sky looking okay. Then my foreground is where I deal with my blacks and shadows and how much of the whites I'll turn up and down to bring my foreground out or not. And realistically, I spend a little bit of time bringing my exposure up on almost every image, and I always have my contrast higher, and then I don't play around with you know saturation, any sort of um, uh, vibrance, clarity or dehaze, just maybe a tiny amount in the single percentile. And then that's it. That's a lot of times my post-processing, I won't even bring it into Photoshop. If you think about the recipe for Royce Bear's work on his images, what kind of a recipe would you give for your typical post-processing? Okay. Adobe Camera Raw is separate from Photoshop. Okay. Separate from Photoshop or separate from Lightroom? What do you mean? Adobe Camera Raw is built in to Lightroom. Mm, so whether you're yeah. using Photoshop or Lightroom, my first step is to use Adobe Camera Raw. Mm. Make sure, of course, you've shot your images um, in RAW 16-bit and save them. But even in even in Lightroom, that you're changing uh, when you're changing the exposure. Sliding. Playing with the highlights, playing with the shadows, all that stuff. If you're in Lightroom, that is built into Lightroom. That Adobe Camera Raw is gotcha. built in there. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I do is I bring that up in either Lightroom or in Adobe Camera Raw before I pull the image into Photoshop. I check the exposure. If your exposure, if you do not have a good mountain <laughs> <laughs> on the the left one third of your histogram if it's not come over if it's pancaked if that sky area and milky way are pancaked against the left side you have underexposed yeah. you need to expose more to the right so you need to take your exposure slider and slide that to the right until the the majority of the highlights where it first starts to curve up the slope up on the that mountain, histogram yeah. on that histogram until they hit the almost the exact middle of the histogram and that the mountain of that histogram that sky is in the the middle uh, is in the left third fully in the left third of gotcha. that. Gotcha, yeah, yeah. Okay? You don't want the highlights to go over to past the midpoint, but you don't want them pancaked against the left <laughs> side. Right. And uh, so you need to 
move the peak of that mountain, that's the middle part of your sky, so that it's at least one-third over to the right, one-third yeah. from the left side. That's number one, okay? Mm. Number two is that I... Uh, I like to take some of the vignetting out, the f- lens fall off. Amen. If you're shooting wide open, uh, f2.8, f2, f1.4, I'd rarely go full 1.4 on a 1.4 lens, but most of us are shooting at f2.8. That's, of course, the worst aperture as far as the evenness of the exposure. you got quite a bit of fall off in the corners. <laughs> I didn't realize that, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It's true with my Tascam. I mean, yeah. my Tascam, my uh, Damron has so, more than my Rokinon does. So you go over to the lens correction uh, submenu, click on that, and that's got a bunch. It's got like six elements in the little icon. Yeah. And if your lens is profiled by Adobe, if you've got a recent version of Adobe, uh, of Lightroom, Adobe, Camera Raw, or Photoshop, they are going to have a profile on that lens. Just such an easy shortcut. Yeah. And you use that profile, and all of a sudden, you'll see that histogram change, especially on the left side, where it opens up the shadows on the left <laughs> side because it's taken away most of the vignetting, the darking fall off. Now, once it does that, don't let it be a full 100%. Back it off to about 80%. Even though you can correct that sky so it's perfectly even, you'll get some magenta crossovers on a lot of uh, as you correct the color on the lens later on the image later on mm-hmm. it'll it'll get a magenta crossover so even though the profile can do a full 100% back it off to about 80% so you bring that profile correction back from 100% of it to 80 because you get more magenta in your image uh, so that uh, because you'll get magenta crossovers or color crossovers with ah. most lenses and most sensors you'll get uh a, when you go to process the image later, you'll see that in the corners you picked up magenta. Oh, pink. yeah. Absolutely. I see yeah. it all the time. Yeah. So back that off from uh, 100% correction. Now, the distortion correction, that's where your your lines, your architectural lines are either barrel distortion or pincushion distortion. Yeah. I don't give a garbage crap about that. <laughs> don't even worry about that because this is, you know, this is um, landscape photography, not architectural photography. Yeah, you're not going to see those if lines. The, if the lenses are slightly curved. Now, if you've got trees out there left or right and they're curving, go ahead and use that distortion mm, and see right if it'll on. straighten them out a little bit. But for the most part, Click click that off. You don't All even you're worried it. about is vignetting the, the light fall off. Okay? Gotcha. Now, if your lens isn't profiled, some of the Rokinon, old Rokinon lenses, they don't have them profiled in some of the early versions of Photoshop or Lightroom. Then you're going to have to manually do that. And I wouldn't would never do more than about 40%, 50% of the manual. And... Uh, of the anti vignetting. Okay? Well, Got that's it. that's item number two. 
Cool. Item number three is to go into the detail. I think that's the second or third uh, sub-menu. It's the details menu, and that controls the noise. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, color noise, chrominance noise, it automatically defaults to twenty number 25. And for the most part, you can just leave that yeah, there. Yeah, that works really great. Yeah. You can go to 30, 35 if you want to, but if in your super high ISOs like 8,000, 10,000, you might want to back bring that to 20 uh, from 25 to 30 to 35. But for the most part, you don't want to do anything there. Luminance is the one that is black and white luminance noise, mm-hmm. okay? That slider defaults to zero, and you never want to go more than 50%. If you're just doing a single exposure with no stacking, I would go somewhere between 35 and 50%. So you bring your luminance slider up to 35 to 50%, huh? Right, and that will get rid of the large amount of that noise, that digital noise. If you're shooting at 6,400 ISO and you bring that slider up to like 40, you'll see a significant amount. But you've got to play back and forth. You want to, <clears throat> normally your screen is set for fit window, fit yeah. screen, which is usually for most screens is about 17%. You want to click on 100 or 200% and then take your hand tool and move the image around so that you see a detailed part of the foreground about 50 percent or 30 percent of the screen is detailed foreground Mm, yeah yeah. and and about 50 to 75 percent is sky and run that slider back and forth and find a happy compromise between getting rid of the noise and losing detail in that foreground. <laughs> if that foreground starts losing significant detail, you got to back off, okay? Right, because you could just smooth out all those nice lines that gave the detail and character of that rock. So you're watching that thing go from detailed to fuzzy, but right. also cleaning the noise in the middle somewhere. Exactly, and that's usually somewhere between 30 and 50%. Now, if you're stacking you know, a dozen images, uh, you'll want to synchronize. So they all either have the same number or zero, right? Yeah. And you, you'll want to do this at the very beginning. If you're stacking a bunch of images, pull up, you know, all seven, all 12 of them and synchronize. Yeah, good. So that you're doing the same thing to all of them because they were all shot the same exposure. <laughs> right, exactly. The only thing that's moving is the stars in the sky are starting <laughs> to move a little bit. I know that Brendan would use about 28 on that luminance slider. I yeah. tend to not even worry about it because I don't care about the noise, but I know that it does look different. Yeah. Now if you're st- if like I say if you're just doing one a single exposure, go between 30 and and 50% and find okay. out what's best. If you're stacking, if you're synchronizing and stacking a whole bunch of images, I would not go more than about 25%, uh, 28%. Okay. And the reason why is because you're mushing the image. You're taking out some of the sharpness. Because remember, that's what the stacking app is to do, mm-hmm. is to stack all those random noise patterns and smooth them out. 
but you're going to help this a little bit by doing somewhere around 20, uh, a value of about 20 on the luminance. So give it a little noise reduction somewhere between 50, 50 and, and 28. Uh, I would keep it closer to the 20 though because you don't want to mush the image too much there because remember starry landscape stacker or sequator is going to do the majority of the noise reduction for you without losing any detail at all they tend to not lose the detail you've noticed because yeah. i've used them a handful of times but not enough to say with certainty they don't lose the detail yeah now some people say to me don't don't even do any luminance noise reduction at all if you're going to stack in lightroom or, or adobe camera raw but i like to use 15 20 percent it it even up to 25 26 27 28 it'll help a little bit it's worth it okay and then um make sure when you um open the image that uh, it's in 16-bit. <laughs> <laughs> if you open it in Lightroom or Cam Adobe Camera Raw, it'll come out in 16-bit automatically if you captured it yeah. that way, right? Yeah. It, if you've got your settings correct, sometimes people don't bother to check their settings because the default comes 8-bit. So you got to make sure that if you're in Lightroom mm. that you have that set up that it stays in 8-bit, I mean in 16-bit. 16-bit. You know, I should double-check mine. I haven't even thought about it. Yeah. So then in your recipe of post-processing, do you tend to almost always go into Photoshop? Well, I do, yeah. I'm, a, I'm not a Lightroom man. I'm a Photoshop man. But remember that the camera raw in Lightroom and the camera raw that's separate from Photoshop that you bring your image in mm -hmm. first are the very same thing. They're exact same thing. They're the same engine. The same. Yeah. So those first three steps that I told you about, the exposure slider, the lens Corrections. correction, and the noise reduction, they all apply. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's the, the three things that I do. Oh, and, and a fourth thing that I do is if I don't like the white balance that I originally shot at, I adjust that. Right. And I find myself, I heard you say the Nightscaper conference that you used to shoot 38, but now you find yourself more in the 4,000s. What are you setting your camera at these days? I'm typically between 4,000 and 4,400. Yeah. That was a masterclass, quick masterclass of how to actually do post-processing the Royce Bear way and even just dealing with the luminosity, noise changes, and reduction. Those are steps that I hardly ever get into. So thank you so much for adding that in there, Royce. I really appreciate it. Let's go ahead and get into our last break of the podcast and we'll come back with Royce Bear and I want to talk a short segment just a short segment about today's gear that you're using versus you know when do we know if our gear is old and when should we replace some of our Milky Way stuff Welcome back to the Photog Adventures Podcast, everyone. I'm hanging out with Royce Bear, and we've talked about the Nightscaper Conference, post-processing, and awesome stories getting out there and having good ethics with your low-level lighting and earn, learn some actual low-level lighting tips I was not planning on getting. That's awesome. I can't wait for your ebook. And those of you who already have Royce Bear's ebook will get the supplement added already. But those of you who don't have it, get out there right now to RoyceBear.com and buy his ebook and learn Milky Way photography from the man. 
Yeah, make sure you register that ebook. Only those that register their ebook, that is, you write back and give your name and your zip code. That's all you have to do to register. I was going to ask you. So if you haven't or you're not sure if you have, you just need to reply in an email to you. That's right. You just reply in an email. You just put uh, ebook registration as the subject, and you just give your name and your zip code, and then I match it up with your original purchase. The reason why I want Uh your name and your zip code is occasionally I plan on doing seminars sometime in a specific area, Uh and if I have a a list of those people who live in a a geographical area, Uh I can fine tune just for that. (laughs) That's smart. And if you're out of country, you're just your area code, your postal code will work. It, yeah, your uh, just your country is fine. Just your country is fine. Okay, awesome. Well, then the last thing I want to ask you in honor of Brendan, a little gear time, and so I want to ask you today, using all the gear that you have in the past for Milky Way photography, is there something today that you're using that has become a new favorite? Well, it's become a new favorite probably in the last three or four years, and that's the L bracket. Uh, If you're not using an L bracket, (laughs) oh, my goodness. uh, That is so important to make sure. You see people with a three-way axis tripod, you know, uh, you know, you're tilting up and down and you're moving left and right, rotating, and then you're tilting to the left or tilting to the right. That's a three-way axis tripod. Yeah. The problem is when you tilt to the left or the right to do a vertical shot. To do a vertical or a panorama. Yeah. Then you're off axis. You're off the center of the tripod. So let's say you go to do, well, first of all, your not only is your camera off axis the center of the tripod but it's going to slip and fall it it actually the base where it goes in that quarter inch thread uh-huh. the base of the camera it can now fall start slipping mm, down mm, right. do you understand what i'm saying yeah because Whereas, you're hanging off on that and that thing has to have a perfect grip to exactly. not slip otherwise it's going to yeah, but with an L bracket, that's a bracket that's shaped in, in an L shape. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's <laughs> Believe L it or shaped. not, <laughs> and uh, it fits on the base of your camera, and then it has these uh, Arco Swift's grooves that fit into a standard Arco Swift quick release, and uh, you put that th- you put your camera either in the horizontal or vertical position. And it's it's quick, it's easy, yeah. and it's locked in there, baby. It's not going to slip. It's not going to fall. Uh, Just in my last workshop, a guy had a ball head that was a very queer ball head. It was very confusing and weird and hard to use. And he could get it into the 90-degree angle for his panels, but it, it, he had to fight it. And if he could just keep his gear the way he has it, keep the tripod he has, keep the ball head that he has, and still be fine if he got the L bracket. The L bracket would have changed everything for him on his panos, and he would have had a very easy time compared to what we ended up having in all of his panoramas, a much more uh, challenging problem. The the other thing about uh, an L bracket, especially if you're in the vertical position, when you... By the way, uh, vertical or portrait position is really great for doing panos. Let's say you uh, you normally shoot with a 14-millimeter lens and you get this wide panoramic yeah. effect to begin with. 
But let's say you want to up your resolution and you want to arc the Milky Way because when you do a panorama, it starts to arc or rainbow the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, instead of shooting with that 14-millimeter lens, why not take a 24-millimeter lens? So instead of going from 114-degree angle of coverage, go to an 84-degree angle of coverage and then put that in the vertical position or portrait position and now do four or five or six shots pano and then when you crop that down to a three by two aspect ratio you've got the same 14 millimeter coverage only now it has twice the resolution (laughs) and it just Uh, looks so cool and the way that it comes out in a crisp-looking Milky Way shot, I mean, that same 14-millimeter versus your panorama, you're going to have better clarity and detail in the panorama, uh, hands yeah. down. Yeah, the noise reduction is just incredible in the, you know, because you just got so much more, the more pixels there. Yeah, you got more data to work with and everything. Oh, it's brilliant. You guys seen Paul Wilson's work, his Gigapano Milky Ways? Yeah. It's so fantastic to see all that detail that he gets in what is, what, 30-plus images sometimes. So fantastic. L bracket, absolutely. So let me ask you this question. Then, and and let me let oh, me yeah. add one other thing by do, do by using the L bracket. Once you get that in the vertical or portrait position, you're directly over the center of the tripod, oh, yeah. so that when you rotate and do that, you're not having the as much parallax problems. Now you can also get a slider and slide that camera back so that the center of your lens is directly over the center of your tripod then you have even less parallax yeah fight that for that nodal point that nodal point (laughs) yeah so all for all of those things though you need to start out with an l bracket and a quick release an arco swiss quick release to hold that l bracket into place so to me that's probably the number one uh game changer and that happened quite a long time ago for me five or six i mean six years ago for many people that's only happened in the last couple of years and i'm often surprised by how many people just don't have one in their arsenal already and they have to figure out okay do you want to buy one before the workshop or should i borrow and so it's something that you should be thinking about guys having in your arsenal right now and you'll be grateful for it i've had a time lapse going in iceland where it got windy and it flew flew my camera onto its side and it hit hard but on the l bracket and it had a little bit of armor a little bit of armor on my camera it It does and it doesn't add a lot of weight to your camera now a really right stuff uh is probably one of the best pieces of uh, l brackets and uh, arco swiss release uh, that are out there they are pretty expensive they're just the quick release and the l brackets each cost about a Average about 150 bucks. Yeah. Now, because there's not much to an L bracket technology-wise, there are a lot of uh, ripoffs out there, Chinese ripoffs, and uh, frankly, my dear, most of those <laughs> are just as good as yep. the really right stuff, and they'll only cost you thirty, forty dollars. Just make sure that they give you good access to your plugins on the left side of your camera for your uh, remote release and all the other things that you want to do. And they have an opening for your battery Exactly, guys. If you don't have those two things, uh, the 
the low price you paid for that L bracket just went out the window. Right. You're buying two now because you'll find out that that first one's useless. Just make sure you find one. It'll say specifically made for your camera body. And don't think that a universal is going to work. Get one for your camera body. I got one from Sunway Photo. It fit my 5D Mark IV perfectly. And, you know, if without it, it would I, I would be frustrated. Yeah, and it. that's some ways probably half to even a third the price of the really right stuff. Sorry, you really write stuff, people in I Lehigh. I really write stuff, what, yeah. <laughs> the, your finish and your construction is top-notch. And for many things, I won't go with anything but really write stuff. <laughs> right, I feel you. Oh, man, the quality of work. So get a really nice quality one, or you can get a less inexpensive one. Just make sure it matches your body. So then the last thing I want to ask you, Royce, and let you go, is... Maybe, you know, there's a lot of us right now that have been doing milky photography for three, four years. At what point have you experienced needing to replace gear just for age alone? Have you had anything? Well, uh, I'm probably ready to replace. I've got an eight-year-old uh, 5D Mark III. Oh, okay. eight years. Yeah, eight years old. And really, it's performing very nicely still. I... I don't see that it's much, uh, you know, much worse. Uh, I mean, that the Mark IV is that much better. I've done side gotcha. by tests, but I'll tell you what is better: the new Mark IV has no dead pixels, and I'm <laughs> I is at an eight-year-old camera. Uh, I'm getting quite a few hot, oh, noisy index dead pixels, and at some point, I'm you know I need to replace that. You know, uh, I bought that camera in 2011. It's now 2019, so it's eight <laughs> years old. Yeah, uh, glass is something that you can almost buy for a lifetime. You can easily go. Uh, 10 years with good quality glass. Some of the Rokinon lenses that are less expensive, you know, that have a lot of plastic components, you know, I use those lenses several times a year. If you're only using them a few times a year, you know, they'll hold up for a decade. But now, mm -hmm. since I use them a lot, some of those right. need to be replaced. And I'll probably replace them with the new Sigma Art series at 14 millimeter one so beautiful oh <laughs> so well built and so well corrected actually they're uh, uh that sigma art 14 1.8 doesn't have as good a coma rec no. uh, correction as the rokinon 14 I've millimeter noticed it. but at f even at f 1.4 which is you know, more than a whole stop more light, that thing has almost no vignetting. That hmm. thing is so even across the frame. It's just incredible. I didn't realize the vignetting yet. Yeah. Man, I've seen the coma. It's definitely better on my stop down to F2, Rokinon F1.4, but uh, the Sigma is just beautiful. Yeah, but if you stop the Sigma Art 14 down F2.8, which is what the, the Rokinon... 14 millimeter. Oh, the is, on 14 millimeter. Yeah, yeah. Then it's totally it's the gone, same, right? Yeah. Or it's the same as that 14? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> same as the uh, F2.8 on the Rokinon. So, 
But wouldn't it be nice to have almost a stop and a half stop and a third more light if mm-hmm. you needed it? Yes, but, which is why uh, I love my F twenty, my uh, twenty four millimeter f one point four. I love that Rokinon. So then, replacing a Rokinon lens is what I'm thinking I need to do. Is there anything else that even comes up as you should always check on this, replace it? I haven't found any other else. I mean, my tripod and ball head. It's almost just a personal preference if I ever want to swap them out because they're going strong. Yeah. You know, you can buy uh, five, six, $400 tripods, or you can buy one $1,500 tripod <laughs> in your lifetime. So the tripods will need to be replaced if you didn't get a good one. Uh, my Rokinon lenses, because I use them a lot, I'm planning on replacing them with the Sigma Art lenses. Uh, right on. The, the new Rokinon 2.4 14mm costing about $600, $650. It's twice as much as the original Rokinon 14mm. It's not a bad, bad lens for the money. I have lens yet. Yeah, and you get about a half stop more light and... Um, a little less vignetting, but the build quality is quite a bit better if you want to replace that. But I think I'm going to go with the, the Sigma 14 art because it's it's got all kinds of good things going for it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for joining me on that gear time, and thank you for joining me for the entire podcast, Royce. We'd love to have you back. Guys, remember to go to RoyceBear.com and get the ebook today. If you don't have it, I'll have a link in the show notes down below, as well as get your Nightscaper conference seat taken right now. Get it reserved. It's going to be $100 off if you use Adventure 100 to get the Photog Adventures discount. And you can also go right now to nightscaper.com and reserve that. Get yourself set up and make sure you get into the hotels as fast as you can. So, Loris, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find your work online outside of RoyceBear.com? Uh, that's a good place. You can also f- find me at uh, RoyceBearPhoto at uh, Instagram, although uh, the majority of my posts today are other people's. I showcase other people on that Instagram account, Royce Bear Photo, uh, and I only put up my own work about one shot every other week now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You're curating a feed basically now. Yes. You're curating yeah. the nightscapers. That's right. And so if people want to fall into your radar with their own photography, what do they need to do? What's their tag? At Nightscaper. Just hashtag Nightscaper, Correct. and you'll be looking through those to find new images to post. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and also go to uh, our Nightscaper Facebook group. Mm, yes. Yeah, and that's a really good place to get yourself known so that I, I'm i I'm probably posting three images a day from the Nightscaper Facebook group. Oh. If they're not in the feed the the actual daily feed i put them in the stories so you get i usually feature two or three images in the stories every day well awesome well then especially if they're vertical because vertical (laughs) looks really good (laughs) you can do a full 1920 by 1080 vertical you know that fills up your whole device yeah and So. so if you've got a good vertical shot that will uh, do a um, a sixteen to nine aspect ratio. Well, I like to feature those, <laughs> and then you know, and I put your tag, your um, 
uh, Instagram account right on it so people... Mm -hmm. Little tip right there. If you have a vertical Milky Way shot and you want to get featured and have a higher chance of being featured by Royce, yeah, bring your vertical ones to him because those are the best. 16.9. Yeah. uh, So any of your vertical shots... That to, and make sure you put your Instagram account in your description. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks, Royce, for being a part of the fo- podcast today. Thank you, guys. Hope you guys are getting out there and getting Royce's ebook and reading his blog post about the lights. And you guys can get some of those balloon lights, as I will be getting some right away. So thanks, Royce. Have a good one. And guys, get out there and have a photog adventure of your own. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>